1: What's up, everyone, and welcome back to the Boost Your Biology podcast. Today's discussion will be focusing in on oxandrolone, otherwise known as Anovar. And joining me on the show is Nick Firon. Nick, welcome to the show. G'day, mate. How are you? Yeah, I'm doing well. Doing well. This is, uh, for those wondering, this is actually our second podcast together. You featured on another one uh, previously, which was the Leo longevity discussion. And actually there was another one before that as well, which was yeah. the, um, the Lipoflux. but Nick, maybe do you want to just share with my listeners a little bit about your backstory, um, who you are and what you do?
0: Yeah, sure. So um, uh, my name's Nick uh, known in sort of the cyberspace is fury and M farm. Um, uh, I guess professionally, I'm a former pharmacist and a current medicinal chemist, a, um, uh, st- uh, my, my education started uh, basically when I left high school, went into did a Bachelor of Human Nutrition, then I did a uh, Bachelor of uh, Health Science, Complementary Medicine, then a uh, uh, Master's of Pharmacy, then Graduate Diploma of uh, Medicinal Chemistry. Um, sort of worked in various fields all through there. Um, uh, and then, yeah, essentially got, uh, got interested in sort of fitness and that sort of thing, and then um, sort of focused my extracurricular sort of, uh studies um if you will um around all sorts of things they're related to health and fitness um <clears throat> yeah uh and that's that's probably taken us to where we are today um
1: yeah yeah awesome it doesn't uh it doesn't sound like you've been studying for that long there nick so <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah no i think it was uh what are we looking at maybe 11 years in total including wow. internships so yeah Wow. Yeah.
1: and you're you're always you're always learning as well i mean i know you're always at the cutting edge, you know, you're sending me studies all the time and we're always like bouncing ideas and sending research articles. Um, so yeah, definitely respect the work that you do. And I definitely look up to you in the space of, um, understanding, um, the, you know, the intricate details around different supplements, um, herbal extracts, anabolic agents. So obviously in today's discussion, we're going to be focusing in on, um, Oxandrolone, Anavar for those listening in, um, we're really going to go deep on this particular, um, this drug. So maybe Nick, did you want to, first of all, outline what is Anavar? So, um,
0: Anivar is the, actually the proprietary name for the, um, oral androgen medicine, oxandrolone, as you mentioned, um, other proprietary names include Lonavar, which is, uh, the product that, uh, CSL pharma group, um, there was approved in Australia in 1994 and was made under license under Biotech General, who were the makers of Oxandrin in other countries, which is the originator product. Uh, <clears throat> I believe the originator company who hold the 1960s patent for Oxandrolone synthesis and application as a, as a, and also other 17 oxygenated oxysteroids was um Serling Co, which are. Now I believe absorbed by Pfizer, um, but they, they went through a few different changes. There were savient um, pharmaceuticals in between there as well. And they sold that product, Anivar, which is obviously now in a co- colloquial name because uh, uh, that product probably doesn't even exist anymore. So um, interesting, this patent described this patent um, from Searle, describes a series of andra and S where the A-ring of the steroid nucleus contains a lactone structure. So if you're looking at the steroid nucleus, it's that first little ring down down on the, um, on the, uh, on the lower left. Like that's generally how it's presented, depending on its sort of topography. Um, uh, and, and this one uh, it more simply contains a, the carbon tube or the oxygen you see in that first ring. Um, that's the unique structural feature of oxandrolone compared to other steroids. Um, uh, both within any appro- uh, approval or, or therapeutic or otherwise, like it it's really is unique. So that unique to OXA steroid development did lead to some limited further research in the 1960s, which mm-hmm. saw some um, interesting research into two uh, OXA estradienes. Um, they're kind of like nortestosterones, uh, more specifically two oxodianolone and two oxomethalodianolone. Uh, which in the experiments outperformed the methylated uh, testosterone controls, and but these never really seemed to go anywhere in development. So I assume because um because of the complexity of the costs uh, that would have been yeah. involved in the synthesis. Um, and similarly, there've been sort of two oxo-modified steroid molecules synthesised and developed as androgens, antiandrogens, androgens um, estrogens, progestins. Anti-progestins, um, as far as I'm aware, um, if, um, any of those have actually become approved medicines, um, there's only one called osoterone, which is a progestin anti-androgen. I believe it's really only got veterinary use too um, with this modification. So as it stands, in in the sixty odd years of, of its use, Oxandrolone is really unique in this respect. That's sort of what sets it aside.
1: Um, yeah. So when when it comes to like um, drug development, things like that, and with Anavar itself, is it actually a derivative of testosterone? Do you want to sort of explain you know, how they yeah benefit? yeah so um
0: it, it's it's probably more closely um, a, a DHT because realistically yeah. um other than that sort of uh, modification that I that I mentioned um uh, it's it doesn't have a carbon four five double bond um which which is what a uh, reducible androgen like testosterone does have so. Um, so if you look at the just the basic skeleton, um, that's that's what it would be uh, DHT with a uh, seventeen a carbon seventeen alpha position methyl substitute, which is used to confer its um, oral bio, oral bioavailability. So um, that's like common amongst oral steroids. Um, it's it's very uh, actually quite a very um, efficient way to uh, increase oral bio, oral bioavailability of um, of um, oral androgens. Um, so yeah, so it's probably more like DHT, um, yep. in, in that sense, but uh, realistically, on when you look at a broader uh, the um, as a as a as an androgen, like um, uh, we sort of scale everything against testosterone. So, um, yeah. so the, the the testosterone effects that you would uh, that you would you would get from um, from oxandrolone in therapeutic application is um, is is what we scale it against.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So let's have a look at it from like the therapeutic context. Let's have a look at the, um, the original use for the medication. Let's have a look at maybe what was the original function and use in medicine for this particular
0: drug? So, so for the actual intended therapeutic applications, these, these are actually numer- numerable, like, over the years. So as both approved uh, and also off-label indications. So these indications are, are dated now. So, so when we take the con- complete sphere of the pharmacology, safety, and effectiveness in these conditions and weigh them up against other medications used for these indications, uh, a rationalisation for oxandrolone prescription becomes pretty thin in 2023. Um, so, so to preface, preface this... Um, like, uh, I thought maybe we could probably should consider that many androgen derivatives um, yeah. that have found their way into so as PED agents have in most instances um, been developed for legitimate therapeutic purposes, like in, in the yesteryear. Um, and much like oxandrolone, this has primarily taken place where, where, there was a, where there was less stringent requirements for drug approval. I mean, like, even way less red tape for ethical approvals to do a clinical trial to test them. Then we even have sort of dating back to like even the early 80s. Um, so <clears throat> have you heard of the um, pioneering US pharmacologist, Francis Kelsey? No. Okay. So, so, so she was essentially, I guess you'd say the mother of modern day drug testing procedures and regulation and, and how these are tied into medicine approval. So she was, um, she was a pharmacologist that essentially set the foundation principles for uh, drug safety testing from um, from a regulatory perspective in the U.S. and as a result, then worldwide it sort of bled out worldwide slowly after that of the preceding decades. And so she was a reviewer for the um, for the FDA um, in the states, and uh, and she she refused in the '60s she refused the authorization of thalidomide because she didn't think it held sort of convincing evidence of data and safety. This is after being approved in the U.S. I think it was in uh, sorry uh, in the UK. Um, most most european countries um so you know what thalidomide is right
1: is the di- is it diuretic or something is no no th- th- thalidomide
0: it's a, it's a sedative and a painkiller but it was it was used oh. in the in like the 60s and in some countries much later than that um for morning sickness in in uh, women and and it was oh. it uh, it caused birth defects serious birth defects and like this oh, was wow. an approved medicine so this was like the hallmark sort of Uh, uh, landmark in drug testing where this woman said no you know I don't want to approve this medicine and as a result like she said like US mothers you know being born with uh, babies with short limbs because that's what's the birth defect it cause um, in the 60s and so that was kind of like you know the world sort of had to step up their drug testing game and set some rather more stringent parameters um, you know for, for drug testing and and obviously, this was sort of in and around, and a little bit before the period where a lot of these androgens were starting to go through clinical trials for their application. So we sort of have mm-hmm. to keep that in the back of our mind when when we're assessing safety data and indications, because um, that was sort of pre Kelsey Kelsey influence. Um, but yeah, um, but even then, like you, you know, you look at. Um, you look at some of those uh, trials, like we're, we're talking for like things like methan- methanolone, which uh, the proprietary name is primabolin, And then there's um, uh, drostanolone proprietary name is um, masterin or masteril. It's got a few different names. And um, you look at some of the, the data from that there um, dating back at that time. And then you look at the very specific parameters tested. Back then, we didn't really even have like lipoprotein. Uh, cholesterol assays you know what i mean and so so we now know that, that that's significantly skewed and like even for um for oxandrolone like there was um there was a suggestion in some of the uh, some of the trial data that it might actually be beneficial in um, treating hyperlipidemia um wow. you know it, that, that's back then so obviously if we're going to use those sort of safety yeah. and therapeutic uh the, the the data that was used to derive these therapeutic indications and we probably should approach it pretty cautiously um but in saying that um uh it doesn't really exactly apply to oxandrolone specifically in full so i've gone off a bit of a tangent we'll bring it back here um uh due to the orphan drug designation by the uh fda and the aforementioned, aforementioned relicensing, relicensing someone i was saying was going through those relicensing there's been more dribs and drabs approach to assessing and publishing safety trials um and the reason for this spanning those indications and obviously the regulatory requirements we come, come to that. So as a result, we have a bit more modern day safety data, which we can get into a bit later. So it was original. so to answer your question all the way back here, so we've got that preface out of the way, um, the original, it was originally approved by the FDA for regaining weight loss from infectious disease, um, where it was primarily used in AIDS patients. Um, so and if, under the...
1: If there were, if there, let's, let's look at that there. So like if one of their uses is to help re-facilitate weight gain following severe infection or illness. Um, I mean, there would have been so many other options to use, right? They could have used like a appetite stimulant. They could have used ciproheptadine. Like yeah,
0: of- I, I guess like the um, the actual pathology of these conditions wasn't exactly nutted out then. I mean, we had like for AIDS, for instance, we had no antivirals back then. Um, so like it was kind of like a preservation thing rather than an actual treatment thing. Um, but yeah, no, I mean like yeah, applying our sort of modern... Uh, wisdom to it there's 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 probably many different ways that we could have gone under uh, could, could have gone about these things differently um but then again we probably wouldn't have we'd never have these drugs if that was the case <laughs> point, yeah um yeah yeah so um and then so so btg that biotechnology group that um that sort of took over the licensing they they expanded it to include weight loss after severe trauma such as burns uh, major surgery and infections malnutrition due to alcoholic cirrhosis. Um, as well as growth retardation in genetic syndromes and also muscular dystrophy diseases. So it got, like back then, you know, you didn't exactly have a huge uh, smorgasbord of drugs you could select from. So these sorts of things sort of got um, got approved with, um, you know, with with no sort of competition against other agents. Um, and then it also gained approval for bone pain due to osteoporosis. Um, do they have? Offset.
1: Out sorry, of curiosity, sorry. do they have the... Um like the dosage ranges they were using back then
0: yeah so so i'll get into the dosing when, when we go through the pharmacokinetics but everything seems to be standardized at 0.1 milligram per kilo, kilo um some one. of it some of it went up higher like but that was sort of in sort of um you know consultant off-label use where <clears throat> they were treating some um some uh very rare anemic diseases and i don't know whether it was um it was you know there was any sort of therapeutic guidelines for that it was probably just more cons- uh, consultant experience doing that and that's probably where like actually that that data interestingly is where we get some of the um probably the the more uh the more sort of rarer side effect data where you're sort of pushing those doses higher because i mean like we can use like case reports from anabolic steroid abuse but they're only sort of um only useful so far because like you know there's there's many many different limitations to those yeah Mm. so in in australia we we um we used oxandrolone in 1994 um it got approved um and that was lonovar um that was approved for pediatric growth disorders like pathological sorts short stature on the back of safety trials performed in the 1980s and the 1990s yeah um so i guess um in these trials in quite young children that that really make oxandrolone's established safety profile distinct from other androgens Uh, um that are being
1: and also this was only oral administration
0: yes yeah this it was uh it was designed like um it was long long worked out long ago worked out that that 17 alpha position that carbon 17 alpha methyl substitution to androgens confers oral bioavailability so on the back of that and obviously and something that they worked at later with that, um, with that unique modification that I mentioned that, um, two OXA modification, um, that it was, it was always going to be given as an oral medication. And like when you, when you're looking at treating children with growth, uh, you know, uh, growth disorders, um, uh, I can't imagine that, you know, uh, injections, you know, back then would be a very sort of convenient way to, to administer it. So, um, so yeah, yeah, but yeah, uh, so, that yes, yeah, so that's obviously how that safety profile was established. And then there's um, existing trial data collecting 119 burn participants post-year 2000. So I think that's when they first started collecting the data. The study was published in, like, 2006. So this is obviously in an area where clinical trial registration would need have, met, have to meet an acceptable standard for modern times, where the children's mean age was eight and a half um, who met the criteria, which was 30% total body surface area burn, were either given a standard of care, which um, in some, some instances of the standard of care included growth hormone or, um, or 0.1 milligram per kilo of oxandrolone twice daily um, for two whole years. So it was used for two years uh, twice wow. daily. Um, so if it's a child weighing 50 kilos, you know, it's about 10 milligrams every single day, uh, twice a day for um, for two years. Um, yeah. So and so that's you know, with with that wow. sort of data, that's that's what I'm saying, like, you know, oxanderone's sort of different from you know the the older androgens tested in the 70s because we we have that sort of um sort of trial data now, um, comparatively. Yeah. yeah. So um I, I don't know. Um if we, we want to go into safety, I thought probably probably be best if we go over like the pharmacokinetics and dynamics Yeah, now or, yeah. If, or if you've yeah. got any bits you want to nut out from that, mate.
1: Well, I think I think what's important to note here is um so you mentioned like that trial duration in the that pediatric population group um the fact that this is an orally active compound um maybe it's worthwhile now sort of exploring what happens in the body following ingestion maybe look at the pharmacokinetics yeah and pharmacodynamics yeah okay yeah so um as we've mentioned yeah,
0: Oxandrone has very good oral bioavailability. So with the pharmacokinetics, we'll start there. We go absorption, distribution, elimination. I'll we'll go over each parameter and how they sort of tie into each other. Um so I I did actually do a rough calculation of the established uh, with the established pharmacokinetic parameters because there was no real information on the actual bioavailability as it as it being tested. Like it was wow. it was in the like you can you can look up the um, the product information leaflets from um from all those prior products and they they say um, they don't really mention it in there at all. Um, but anyway, I used the area under the curve, and I worked out it's so it's around about ninety seven percent, which is in line with like the 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 Wikipedia uh, and like the and the dodgy website uh, <laughs> citation. <laughs> so I guess there, there's there's some degree of that, and it's and it's also. Um, because it's the, the uh, you know, we do have uh, elimination data and um, an excretion data. You can see that uh, around about three to 5% is excreted um, in feces as well. So it's probably assumed that there's limitations of the absorption and that's made its way through. So that's what sort it of does weigh up to. So how does, that,
1: um, how does that compare with other orally active steroids? Uh, uh,
0: they, they all, they've all got pretty good oral bioavailability. Um, as I said, that, that's uh, that, substitution at the, the carbon 17 with a with a methyl or an ethyl group or any sort of alkyl group that really does seem to offset that first pass effects and um and, and allow it to, to get into concentrations. Um what I'll get into with the difference with um with oxandrolone is is that metabolic stability is is not only um as a result of that 17 um, carbon substitution it's also a result of that unique feature that we mentioned earlier, that that a ring um, uh, two oxa substitution. So um, uh, that, well, I'll get into that, but um, but basically that that in itself allows it to have a longer half life um, and right. probably probably more more capacity to um, to exert the anabolic effects um, without uh, risk of um, you know uh, metabolic. Bio transformation, so but we'll get into right. that. Yeah. Anyway, anyway, so it's so it's it's also um, it also absorbs really quickly. So um, the T-max or the time to maximum concentration is actually only a one hour. Um, <laughs> yeah, which which t- oh, <laughs> interesting. I've seen people in the uh, in the social media spaces suggesting sublingual administration might be more beneficial to expedite the first pass effect or assumedly peak the concentration sooner before with going now, to the gym with- or.
1: Yeah, as like a pre-workout, I've heard. That. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, I've <laughs> seen, I've seen that cited of the... So I'll get to the first pass effect in a second. But, um, but for the optimization of peak concentration in a timely matter, I'm not too sure we can improve on an hour. <laughs> um, there, there's there's a study performed using actually the study performed using an oil based sublingual preparation of axandrolone in comparison mm-hmm. to a swallowed tablet. That found actually found for the sublingual formula, there's um, there's a lower C max, so a lower um, a lower maximum concentration reached, slower Tmax, so it takes longer to get to that Cmax, and then less area under the curve, which means that the total dr- uh, body exposure to the drug is actually less. So given these measures and the high oral bioavailability, first pass effect is probably non-existent for affecting oxandrolone pharmacokinetic profile. And for what it's worth, the, um, the purpose of that study, that um, comparing the, the oral, uh, the oil-based sublingual, uh, preparation to the tablet was um was to determine the usability in um of sublingual preparation in neonates so in, in young babies but it, it also had an arm for for adults um yeah so that's probably absorption covered there um so we can move on to distribution um uh it would appear that um it has a low to medium volume of distribution so that's a calculated volume of distribution <clears throat> at around 500 mils per kilo which is probably in line with uh with the the two compartment model pharmacokinetic profile, it has where it has a high plasma protein binding. So it, it, I think it's around over over ninety five percent is bound to to plasma proteins. Um, so from a broad perspective, high um, plasma binding might also explain the extended half life. So um, we'll go into half life um, uh, in a minute. But um, uh, but it's but in terms of like that extended half life, um, it's it's actually a very Beneficial um, parameter for an oral androgen, especially for the therapeutic indications that it's used for. Um, so the volume distribution calculated therape- at therapeutically relevant concentrations. so that's that 0.1 milligram per kilo twice a day, um, would suggest that um, not a great deal of oxandrolone will make it into lipophilic tissues such as the fat tissue or the brain. Um, we can't really make much more inferences from from that calculation alone, but it might explain. Uh, might explain the little noted effect on the um, hypothalamic pituitary gonadal axis in children yeah. using therapeutically relevant doses for the well, hypermelanomy.
1: That, that was going to be my next point is, um, like with a lot of these orally active um, steroids, I'd assume that most of them would have the ability to cross the blood-brain barrier.
0: Yeah, I mean, like a, a steroid itself is, you know, uh, it's a steroid nucleus. So, you know, it's a, a, a cholesterol molecule. So realistically, it, it probably it probably could um, and, and probably will. Um, but w- with that high plasma protein binding um, sort of retaining and maybe, um, for want of a better term, disseminating um, uh, oxandrolone around the body, The the capacity to transverse um, the blood brain barrier or other membranes is probably limited by the fact that it can um, it it will be you know uh, disattached from the from the plasma proteins in a in a more uniform manner. So um so where where you where you're getting sort of like you know if we're looking at specifically at that HPG suppression um, yeah you probably you probably be think you probably be uh, the the parameters that you'd probably be most concerned with would be the capacity to accumulate um, lower plasma binding where it are a pass through. So um, well, with a you, with,
1: with with young population, the pediatrics, did they not yeah. ever think about the fact that it might have any suppression?
0: Well, well, the thing was they did, they did test that in the, in the later indications. And it, if there was any suppression, it was like not necessarily clinically relevant. So, um, so it was only. Remember, we're talking, we're talking very low doses here. So, um, uh, we
1: well, should not We should much. actually explain. Low, low. We should explain to the audience here what suppression means. So, maybe do you want to explain. Yeah, this term yeah, okay. suppression is used in, in the PED space. Do you want to explain that?
0: Yeah, yeah. So, um, basically, uh, it is androgenic suppression is suppression of your gonadotrophins. So, your gonadotrophins being luteinizing hormone, follicle stimulating hormone. Um, this occurs with androgen use uh and evidently uh probably scaled at dosing um uh depending on the androgen itself i mean like testosterone will reliably shut down even at very low doses but oxandrolone um is seemingly is, is not is not as is not a strong effect but basically what what will happen is the androgen will bind into receptors at the hypothalamus which will then uh, reduce the signaling to the pituitary and to release luteinizing hormone, which then doesn't happen um luteinizing with the absence of low concentration luteinizing hormone follicle stimulating hormone you get less production of your sex steroids at your gonadal tissues with yeah. testicles or ovaries yeah um so that's that's it probably in a nutshell um it's there's there's a little bit more complexity to that but i'll probably stay away from that because there's there's all sorts of things that go on with um testosterone and and estrogen and then estrogen in isolation then androgens in isolation. A lot of this has been sort of nutted out from some research, but, um, but, uh, yeah. Yeah. I might actually, I
1: might might also add one point there as well with, um, with suppression for those listening in, um, this is usually occurs with exogenous. So external use of a, of an anabolic any or androgenic, um, agent that's going to, you know, trick the body into thinking that it's you know it it affects the hpg axis as nick alluded to um so that's really important to consider and so when we're looking at Anivar, i mean so what what have they noted that in these like in the pediatric population uh this 0.1 milligram per kilogram of body weight like did they actually measure whether or not it had any suppression
0: yeah yeah so that so they they some of the some of the research they they weren't specifically testing like uh, luteinizing hormone or, or follicle stimulating hormone right. um, or no, nothing that I come across seemed to have that in there. But, um, but if they looked at like um, testosterone, uh, estrogen concentrations and saw and noted, no, no little, little to no differences. Um, it were no, no clinically relevant uh, uh, differences in there. Um, wow. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, I mean, it's, I, I guess like yeah, go, going on the sort of kinetic parameters that we've already that we've already gone over and sort of staying on topic as well. Um, you, you look at something like an, an androgen that's uh, like, let's just say like a uh, an androgen replacement of like testosterone and anthate, you know, um, if you were to um, inject that, you're going to get a really sort of uh, uh, steady supply of it. You know what I mean? Like it's, it's not going to mimic your, um, it's not going to mimic your, your rhythms. You know what I mean? So like, so you're going to have, Always have a certain level there where there's not going to be, well, there will be peaks and troughs depending on your administration intervals, but but there's always going to be sort of that basal level that that might not necessarily reflect what happens on an average during your day. So so when you go and get a testosterone blood test as someone who doesn't use exogenous androgens, um, you know you get it first thing in the morning to try and get that LH surge. You're going to get like a peak level, but during the day it's going to go up and down. You know what I mean? So and that's that's all homeostatically controlled so that your testosterone doesn't get suppressed by your own testosterone production. You know what I mean? Yeah. So like, you know, you produce too much testosterone, but it does actually do that, but it does it on sort of micro levels. Right. So when you, when you're looking at androgen replacement, um, things like this, uh, uh like, like testosterone and anthode, you're going to have that basal level. And, and with oxandrogen, obviously there's clearly some sort of dose, um, dose influence here. Um, but with oxandrolone, you know, you, you, there is those breaks, like if, if they were to dose, I mean, it's a nine-hour half-life. So you will reach a steady state concentration. But where that actually falls in terms of like a, an equivalence, which we don't have any data on, to what you would normally produce as a, you know, in, in testosterone, it, it, um, it doesn't um, – it's it, it, it probably lower at a lower threshold. Well, clearly it is at a lower threshold because it's not suppressing as mm. much as um as as something else would another androgen would.
1: So what about a- at from the
0: therapeutically like... relevant doses? <laughs> yeah. yeah.
1: So what about from like a um like the safety aspect? I mean, obviously in that study they've assessed whether or not it has like a strong suppressive effect on endogenous testosterone production. But what about mm. did they assess like liver function and kidney function? Yeah. Anything?
0: Yeah. Yeah. So um so the 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 liver functions. Um, i I was gonna, I was going to go to safety afterwards. we go, Um, if if you want to finish the pharmacokinetics, because because a lot yeah. a lot of the safety data, if we, if we got the we got the sort of context, we can um we can sort yeah. of relate that back, if sure. that makes sense. Yeah. Yep. Um. So I, I mean, yeah, happy to go there now, but we'll I reckon it'd probably be probably be better if we go um if we go through the the rest of the the kinetics oh. and then the dynamics and then then we can look at safety in respect to that. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, so, uh, so the met- metabolism more broadly, um, because oxandrolone has that basic pharmacophore, like that basic skeletal, uh, structure of, um, of, uh, dihydrotestosterone hallmarked by that absence of the, of the 4-5 bond. It's, um, it's not a substrate for aromatase and it's not a substrate for 5-alpha reductases. Um, so, uh, based pretty much all androgens, save for some, um, offset by steric hindrance in certain substitutions, um. That carbon-4-5, the absence of that carbon-4-5 double bond um, basically makes it not a substrate for aromatase or not a substrate for 5-alpha reductase. So this alone gives it a bit more metabolic stability, um, uh, meaning that it's those major pathways of biotransformation of of androgens don't occur. occur And the drug's active life itself is likely only limited by minor metabolic profiles um, and its elimination rate. Um, But we can get to the elimination rate in a second.
1: Yeah. Do you got any, any questions about that, Mike? Well, that's, that's a really important point Um, with that, those different pathways. So for example, if somebody were to take testosterone exogenously, then it's prone to going down either that five alpha reductase pathway or the aromatase pathway. But you're saying this does not apply with Anovar.
0: No, no, it doesn't apply with Anovar. And it's, it's, that that uh, absence of that carbon four five bond that seems to be the main driver of that, but that also the um the alpha ring uh the a ring substitution, which I'll we'll get into in a minute, um seems to also uh seems to also have um, some sort of effect on that as well, um reducing <coughs> reducing the major bio uh, bio pathways being aromatization or, or uh, five alpha reduction, and then there's also the other minor pathways um uh that that involved in it that oxandrolone does seem to go down a very small amount, but not to the effect, not, not to the point of, um, of, uh, any sort of, uh, drug interactions or anything like that. Um, but yeah, yeah. So it's, it's, it's a pretty stable molecule. Um, so, uh, so I guess from the metabolism, um, we can go into, uh, uh well, well I'll, I'll go into i'll go into those details of um of of its metabolism so um yep. that oxygen substitution at the carbon 2 of the a ring so that stereocenter that unique feature that we've spoke about uh, uh is is likely a major thing, determining factor in its metabolic stability when compared to other 17 alpha alkylated androgens not too much is known why this is the case but it would appear much like the pyrozole ring attachment uh in the a ring of stanozolol so stanozolol is a unique oral androgen as well it's got a pyrozole ring attached to uh the uh pyrozole, yeah pyrazol ring attachment to the a-ring of the of the steroid nucleus much like that um in that that uh seems to provide some sort of steric hindrance to the reduction of the carbon three alpha keto group um so that's the in the a-ring now the the, the the you'll see the double bond to the oxygen that's the alpha three 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 alpha keto group um it uh that sort of provides that uh, both the, that two oxa substitution, oxandrolone, and the pyrozole ring in stanozolol, it seems to sterically hinder three alpha hydroxysteroid dehydrogenase um, that, that normally will reduce that. Um, so that's that's a, sort of a semi minor um, uh, metabolic profile, a me- metabolic um, enzyme that's um, that's somewhat inhibited by that. So that's that's conferred by that modification. Um, so this is further evidenced by the fact that the kinetic data suggests that oxandrolone is predominantly eliminated ringly unchanged, with only very few minor conjugated metabolites that, uh, that, are, that still maintain that two-oxid DHT skeleton. So even though they've, they've gone through the body, they've you've urinated them out. Um, most of it, I think it's um, somewhere in the order of 60%, is, or 40, 40 to 60% is the uh, original molecule itself, and the other ones are uh, a conjugated two-oxid uh, um, DHT derived um metabolites so uh, so out of the many that exist the most readily retrievable is um is categorized as carbon 16 beta position hydroxylated form of oxandrolone so it's clearly gone through some sort of 16 beta uh, uh steroid dehydrogenase um biotransformation that's only at a very very minor degree um so with this in mind um I don't see how the common use of like a CYP3A4 inhibitor such as grapefruit juice would have any appreciable effect on metabolic profile of oxandrolone. This is also something else I've seen in recently in social media <laughs> posts that's left my head scratching. Um, so as far as I'm aware, CYP3A4 does not act at uh, a stero- as a steroid d 16-beta uh, hydroxylase reaction. So even if it did, it would probably be inconsequential in the scheme of predominantly unchanged renal elimination pathway of oxandrolone yeah uh yeah a lot lot of a lot of unusual things that that
1: go well, on. that's uh well maybe maybe sort of explain that to my audience so um what Nick's referring to there is uh the fact that uh some people are you know using this anavar in conjunction with grapefruit juice, hoping that it would what extend the effects is that their hope yeah
0: or uh, yeah either extend the effects or maybe um or increase its, um, or bioavailability I don't, I actually don't know, but yeah, like it's, this is, this goes back to, I think we, um, I think we spoke about this on the first, first, uh, I don't know, maybe it was the second podcast we did where, where people think that there's these sort of, um, bioavailability skeleton keys <laughs> and oh, grapefruit is yeah. one of them, pepperines, the other one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. yeah um, yeah. Uh, like it's, you sip three, a four, it's, it's, you know if you if you use grapefruit juice with a substrate for CYP3A4 then yeah you could probably do those things extend its half life by reducing its metabolic deactivation or or inactivation or, or even by uh yeah um uh, bio-transformation. but um but yeah uh, when when you've got when you've got a uh, profile locks like oxandrolene where it's essentially going through the body unchanged you urinating it out um yeah. and and the the uh enzymes responsible for the minor Changes that occur to some of the drug have got absolutely nothing to do with CYP3A4.
1: Um,
0: <laughs> yeah. just yeah. makes no sense.
1: Yeah. What about, um, I'm curious to know, I, I doubt there are any studies on um, whether or not they've combined testosterone with oxandrolone. Yeah. Is-
0: so that, that they were in um, those studies. Um, uh, there's only very few of them and they tend to be only case reports. I think it's um, Faconis disease is the, is the really rare anemia type, disorder where they use like a few anabolic agents to, to, um, to treat the patients. Um, it's obviously, um, dated now, but yeah, uh, like there's only so much you can derive from that when like the primary outcomes of those studies are looking at like, you know, treating the disease that's, you know, pretty dire disease. So, uh, but yeah, there is those, um, I didn't really look into them very much because there's only so much you can glean. Um, Mm. but, but in those, in those studies, like yeah. um, there was um like notable liver um, liver toxicity um, yeah uh, put in there I, I mean like that's probably the most of the thing that they could measure when they're when they're doing these sort of case reports so they' don't, they tend to sort of fall under a different categorization when they're when they're not necessarily getting it approved for an indication that's um, that's more common
1: yeah yeah, so we've done absorption distribution metabolism,
0: yep. excretion. We're going to elimination now, yeah. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Yeah. So it's 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 got a two compartment elimination model. So uh, so which is what we'd expect for a drug with a rapid T max. Um, so it was within one hour and high protein binding. So, what, so, so this includes the rapid distribution phase where the drug is present really only in the central compartment or, or the blood. And then the slower elimination phase where the drug is assumed to have reached the perfused tissues, such as the muscle. So this, this is probably ideal for an orally, um, orally active anabolic agent, um, uh, and it was, so the elimination rate is sort of twofold where the elimination phase half-life the time we assume it reached 50% of its doses reach the target tissue or the muscle is around about nine hours, as, as we mentioned earlier. So, um, so with this in mind, the steady state concentration probably reached after two to three days of twice day dosing. So, um, so yeah, uh, that's, that's, it's uh, uh, elimination.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So yeah. um now, I guess we could probably look at safety profile, maybe. We can well, sort
0: of... I was thinking maybe we'll go to the dynamics now. Um, oh, yeah? I, dynamics. I, yeah. I, I can go into a fair bit of detail on the, on the dynamics because um, this is uh, – for, for uh, Oxandrolone um, – and what we understand of like the older style measurements of anabolic to androgenic ratios, which are, yeah. which still sort of have some relevance depending on how they're used, we can sort of look at um, some of the modern ideas with that. That you know I found interesting <laughs> um, um, that that might might make for some sort of new information. That's uh, that's that's been, that's been uh, you know that other people might not have ever really looked at, um, so mm-hmm. I thought that might be interesting. Thing is that's that's kind of your shtick, mate. <laughs> so um, yeah. Uh, so quite obviously, oxandrol is an androgen, and thus we'd expect it to uh, the primary interactions to be with the androgen receptor. So on the whole, there's much nuance to this though, uh, where we are nah, able to discern the specific pharmacodynamic profile in respects to such aspects as tissue selectivity. And resultant transcriptome where the androgen receptor, when the androgen receptor is um, activated. And some of this nuance has been experimentally assessed specifically with oxandrolone, but I'll I'll get to that in a minute. So so with it being a DHT analog, as we've prior described, by virtue of the oxandrolone structure, we can follow the modern lines of what is understood of steroid hormone intracellular trafficking. Um, or the nuts and bolts of what might constitute the difference or the relevance of the of the old hirschberger Ashes, um, you know, results of the SE where they compared a whole heap of anabolic drugs. Um, so you, you know what the hirschberger Ashes are? I think we've gone
1: over that in the prior ones. Yeah, I mentioned it briefly last Yeah,
0: time. yeah. So basically, they'll they'll get male rats, castrate them, they'll give them scale dosing of um of uh, of uh, Anabolic agents and testosterone as, as the control, and then they'll um, they'll uh, over a period of time, and then they'll um, basically kill them, harvest what is it the weight the what well, harvest the testes, seminal vesicles, ventral prostate, and the levator ani. Oh yeah, 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 yeah. And then um and then they'll.
1: Well, that's they'll, why that's that's funny because they with some of the herbal extracts they actually don't they they do um, assessments on like levator ani testicles like weight. Yeah, and yeah. Like but-
0: Yeah, so it's it's like as a as a as a model, like those those particular organs and muscles of the rat, and you know they're they're set to correspond to to either anabolic or androgenic activity. So yeah, yeah, there there is like the yeah I think I sent you that uh, Timosporo Cordifolia paper where they're they're looking at uh, looking at that. So like it's it's I guess like it has been like in, in the modern day of like. Metabolomics and transcriptonomics where we're able to sort of look at what actually happens after an androgen is bound to an androgen receptor, they're probably somewhat obsolete now, um, and it'll, they'll only get further get obs- more obsolete when the te- technology advances. But but they they're still sort of served as a as a pretty good yardstick, and um, and even sort of into modern time, the validation of them tends to hold up to some degree, depending. Um, so uh, so according to the experiments on oxandrolone, it seems to be an average anabolic to androgenic ratio of 10 to 1 as compared to testosterone. So that's derived from the scaling doses of box, oxandrolone and testosterone in the rat model from 400 micrograms per day per rat um, through to... Two thousand micrograms per day per rat. So, what's important to note in in these that in those calculations, these were an average. Um, and if you do look at the actual results themselves, so the weight differences, you can see the um, the androgenic measures, i.e. the measure of the androgenic tissues, the weight, increased disproportionately to the anabolic measures as the doses increased. So, which would suggest a reduction in that tissue selectivity, um, mm. or as we're going into, perhaps instigated, um, more intracellular trafficking that is associated with the androgenic effect, um, much the same as testosterone. Um, so for the reference, the top end of this scale in the rat, rat model was two milligrams per rat per day. Um, and this is, um, this is equivalent to 2.2 milligrams per kilo as a human equivalent dose, um, which in itself is 22 times greater than the therapeutically prescribed dose. But, um, but even a, a dose, a human dose, a human equivalent dose of one milligram per kilo skewed that androgenic impact by about a hundred percent. So, um, so, wow. um, yeah. Uh, so, uh, yeah. So the, so the actual threshold for titrating the dose and, and minimizing the androgenic activity is actually pretty narrow. Um, if we're going to use that as, as the, as the standard. And as I said, they they tend to sort of stand the test of time. So, um, so we have to remember, though, that the extrapolation of this rat model to human model as a yardstick of the androgenic effect is somewhat fraught with inaccuracy for many factors. Some, some including um, which we'll get into into the uh, into with further uh, pharmacodynamic uh, uh, data. I'll will go through. Hmm. Um, so at the physiological physiologically and therapeutically rele- relevant concentration the DHT pharmacophore seems to interact with the androgen receptor and initiate uh, translocation to nucleus in a way that is different to androgens with the carbon-4-5 double bond, like testosterone. So what I'm saying there is DHT acts differently to testosterone. We we know that DHT is a more potent androgen, but the, the reasons why for that are only uh, in terms of like what happens as an intracellular cascade um, after it's bound is only really, we're only just sort of working that out now. And it's actually seems to be related to some of the other effects that we're able to sort of discern between dihydrotestosterone and testosterone.
1: When you say, and this is obviously, we see this uh, time and time again is DHT being more potent than testosterone. Do you mean in its ability to bind to the receptors or activate?
0: Yeah. 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 It, 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 bind, it, w- it will bind. Uh, preferentially um, uh, uh, depending on the concentration um, but the actual uh, from binding to uh, transcription it is more potent in terms right. of like out competing yeah so um, this might be the reason why DHT analogs seem to confer some tissue selectivity compared to testosterone and other androgens with the that carbon carbon uh, four five double bond in the in the uh, steroid skeleton Um, so the binding dynamics and metabolomics that seem to underpin some of this have taken a more granular advance in recent time with the advent of non-steroidal SARMs, such as uh, the androgen receptor agonists and and also uh, some antagonists Um, not to the point of being able to design very very precise medicines like we're not quite there yet but um but where we can make some plausible correlations to the therapeutically relevant um anabolic to androgenic ratios that, that do seem to check out from these in vitro experiments when correlated to the um, therapeutic application. I mean, as we can see, it seems to check out with that 0.1 milligram per kilo dose and, uh, and low suppression. So if we're going to use the suppression as a yardstick and correlate that back into those Hirschberger or it seems to check out there. Um, So these mechanistic theories of tissue selectivity have existed for a while with CERM. So we, we, we understand them to a more advanced degree with CERMS like tamoxifen or Clomiphene um, to their uh, selective estrogen receptor site modulators, but um, but uh, maybe there's only maybe only sort of twenty years of data for SAMS and SARM anti androgens um, and androgens in general, and they're based upon the theory of squelching something called squelching, which is uh, or, or it's called it's it's like, kind of like the preferential recruitment of nuclear nuclear receptor um, coactivators and co repressors. So it's a, the the profile of um, of coactivators and co repressors is. Um, is uh is uh you know something that, that occurs after the um uh steroid hormone is bound to its nuclear receptor. So it'll, it'll re- uh, change conformation, recruit coactivators, co-repressors, <laughs> then translocate. So um so uh, it's suggested that the angio receptor conformation change upon binding between DHT, the dihydrotestosterone and testosterone, may see sequestering of coactivators or co-repressors inside the cell that may then have a cascade effect that reduces or inhibits other steroid receptors from translocating to the nucleus. So uh, do you want me to explain that again? <laughs>
1: uh, yeah, maybe. Um, In so what there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so basically,
0: um, it appears that um, like the way the DHT binds into the uh, androgen receptor causes a conformational change to that androgen receptor that allows it to preferentially recruit these necessary um co or co-repressors of the androgen receptor that allows it to then translocate into the uh into the nucleus and um and then and then become active so so it kind of like pinches pinches them from um, from testosterone so it'll so the the so by doing that um testosterone and Estrogen, to some degree, because they do have common coactivators and co-repressors, um, can, can, um, uh, can be sort of surrendered as a result of, of dihydrotestosterone binding or di- dihydrotestosterone analog oxandrolone binding. So it appears that the very broad DHT intracellular trafficking, which is that, you know, that recruitment of um, coactivators or co-repressors that might confer its potency over testosterone or potentially reduce or inhibit or modulate the, activa- the, the activation of the receptor, and then the translocation of even estrogen or glucocorticoid receptors into the nucleus. So, um, so this it's a somewhat proven theory. Um, so we can take it a potentially validating example of like mm-hmm. gyno, for instance, with the use of um, a five alpha reductase inhibitor. You're reading me, mate. <laughs> you're, you're two steps ahead. <laughs> this is why we this is why we complement each other. Um, yeah. So, um, uh, yeah. Uh, so, like, yeah, you, you, you know, you. Take a 5 alpha reductase inhibitor, inhibit the 5 alpha reductase enzyme, which generally is expressed local tissue. So testosterone goes into the cell, uh, uh, acts in like a, a paracrine type manner, autocrine type manner in the, in the particular cell. Um, yeah, with, with it not converting to EHT, the um, estrogen profile or the testosterone to estrogen profile might dominate, and therefore you, you get estrogen related sites, which could be gynecomastia. Um, hmm. So, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's probably the more the nuts and bolts of that. Um, yeah. So where, where I'm going with all this is the, the DHT analogs, such as oxandrolone, which is metabolically stable, able to achieve therapeutically active um, cerebral levels, ser- serum levels. And unlike DHT, it's primarily produced, which, which is primary produced at the DHT uh, at the tissue level. So oxandrolone, you've got it in your serum at these therapeutically relevant concentrations. DHT it doesn't circulate in very, very large degrees. Um more or less produced at the well t- most of it is produced at the tissue level. So, so with, with, uh, with, uh, oxandrolone, it's, it's, it's essentially unregulated, whereas DHT naturally produced and, is regulated.
1: And yeah. isn't DHT like not hor- orally bioavailable? Is that? Yeah,
0: no, uh, you, you, have to add that, uh, 17, um, yeah. methyl substitution. and they do use, uh, 17 methyl testosterone as a control for a, a lot of things. Um, as a, as a sort of a proxy for DHT um, where, Hmm. you know, um, intramuscular administration is not really possible. And I'm not even sure whether you can add add an ester to DHT itself. So like, I'm pretty sure uh,
1: like uh, is a DHT it's using cream form, like topical. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It better be the free base. Yeah. So it's, it's, like there's, there's no capacity to control, um, to control its, uh, to control its um, uh, oh. you know, metabolism uh, or its, mm. its, um, its profile, its pharmacokinetic profile. So yeah. um, so because of that, because of um, oxandrol and those partic- particular parameters of oxandrol it may have preferential capacity to induce androgen receptor-mediated anabolic transcriptome, um, whilst m- minimizing or even offsetting those androgenic or, or um, estrogenic profiles. So because of those, that intracellular trafficking. Um, obviously, when I when I was sort of reading this, sort of like you know, sort of tying it back into oxandrolone, went down another rabbit hole, and um, and uh, and sort of looking at the um, anti anti well the indirect anti glucocorticoid effects of um, yeah. of, of oxandrolone. So so I was running off this same premise where oxandrolone appears to negatively regulate the glucocorticoid med, uh, modulated gene expression via an indirect action mediated through the androgen receptor. So, it's suggested wow. upon binding to the AR, it can actually form a heterodimer or a complexation. So, the androgen receptor and the glucocorticoid receptor, um, uh, is, which would suppress the glucocorticoid receptor transactivating into the nucleus. Wow. Um, so, so it's kind of like an indirect anti-cortisol effect, so to speak. So, so much like the squelching, which was that the co-repressor <clears throat> co-activator. And did you wanna-
1: did you want to sort of explain um that anticortisol or the glucocorticoid receptor it's not you're saying it's not an antagonist
0: for the no the, um... not a direct antagonist um, uh, like it, it won't it won't uh, slot into the glucocorticoid receptor preferentially to uh, endogenous or endogenous exogenous or endogenous um, glucocorticoids but what it will do is um, well, what it seems to do um, which is sort of um validated by the um by the research in like burns victims and such um what it would seem to do is um is reduce the capacity of the cortisol to bind to the receptor and then right. induce the change. yeah so yeah. so you know in a hyper catabolic metabolic state such as like right. what you get with burns and things like that that's that might be one of the reasons why it's so therapeutically active in comparison to even other androgens
1: so basically um it's to a degree offsetting the catabolic nature of hyper cortisol because the cortisol has a a catabolic action you're saying it actually shrinks or reduces muscle tissue
0: yeah yeah i mean like you know in a hypercatabolic state you're going to be churning through muscle tissue um uh, where there's excess cortisol uh mediated glucocorticoid receptor activation so um obviously that's you know as as a result the, the result of the burns and then also uh, I think even one of the indications, one of the earlier indications, was in long-term high-dose corticosteroid use, so for treating certain conditions. So, um, yeah, where we, where basically that that increased protein turnover, you're basically putting somewhat of a governor on that, um, right. uh, as well as you know the androgen. Uh, anabolic androgen receptor mediated anabolic activity so it's kind of like a like even though that glucocorticoid um, receptor sequestering pathway might only be minor um it's it's kind of like a one two punch yeah. yeah
1: would the action or the indirect effect on that GR receptor have any effect on body fat or like adipose oh. tissue
0: I think it's probably only relevant in sort of where it's uh, where there's over activation of the glucocorticoid receptor. So, um, Mm. so that potentially maybe in like some sort of inflammatory um, uh, (laughs) obesity uh, condition. I I don't know. Uh, And I don't think it's anywhere, Um, but yeah, I mean like there's, there's other conditions, you know, uh, but yeah, it's, it seems to be well. all the data's done in trauma. So there's only so far we can really extrapolate
1: that. Um, Yeah. Yeah. okay yeah all right awesome so then yeah. um, did you have a, a next point you're going to bring up after that so we've done the ad absorption distribution metabolism elimination yep. we've done safety profile
0: yeah and then the, then the pharmacodynamics that we've, we've sort of gone over now um, yep. yeah uh, I mean like there's another rabbit hole we, got, we could go down but it's 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 a little bit more speculative um, where where there's that, that the DHT um, it's basically the way the DHT or um, uh, binds into that N-terminus domain, domain of the androgen receptor and potentially might uh, induce those very unique conformational changes of the androgen receptor that seem to dominate over other um, you know androgen ligands. So, um, that, and that seems to be the 3-keto group um, on the A-ring of the steroid skeleton. Um, but interestingly, um, it, it also seems to be a, a cyano group that's um, that's been added to psalms. That seems to do that. So, so the the developers of um, of psalms, I don't think they're working off any sort of um, uh, structural activity relationship models um, specifically. I mean, they're, they're probably some very very broad ones. But um, that three that that Cyanus group that's that's uh, that's common amongst pretty much all the psalms seems to fit. Seems to cross over with that three K- keto group. But as I said, we're probably getting a little bit more uh, into more speculative terms there. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah,
0: so we, we can go we can go into safety form. We've kind of touched it a little bit. Um, yeah, like here and there. Um, so should we get should we go into it?
1: I'd love to because I want to sort of explore like um, the biggest drawbacks with orally active, like androgenic compounds like Anavar or the other ones you mentioned before. Is the fact that they can be hepatotoxic, so affecting the liver, um, and also perturbing cholesterol parameters yeah. or cholesterol markers so maybe do you want to sort of yeah. explain that
0: yeah 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 so um so the so uh, we'll, we'll go into the um the, the cholesterol one we'll start there and uh, yep. m- m- so much like any androgen administered orally obviously they're gonna they're gonna go through the liver liver's major side of cholesterol me- metabolism um lipid skewing forms that characteristic adverse effect it's it's it common even in injected Androgens, um, but like you know with, with as, a, as I mentioned with it quite literally having to go through the liver after being swallowed thats um, it's going to be one of the major things, and that is something that's noted in pretty much all the safety data, including that in children and uh, and obviously uh, in the, the modern modern environment um, that's that's something that's uh, a little bit more closely monitored now that we're sort of aware of it um, and it seems to occur via HDL suppression. Um, through inducing hepatic triglyceride lipase. So that's, a, that's an enzyme that, um, that hydrolyzes um, lipoproteins um, and it seems to prematurely hydrolyze um, HDL, high-density lipoproteins, and by consequence, um, increases LDL concentration. So where you could have, like, say, a HDL, uh, um, concentration of like three millimolar per liter, um, and you you hydrolyte you're taking an oral androgen, it might drop down, and then your LDL will come up. So it's not necessarily well; it could be an increase in um in uh, total cholesterol concentration because there is some indications that some androgens can induce HMG CoA reductase, which is the enzyme responsible or the terminal enzyme responsible for cholesterol synthesis. So it can do that, but uh, the the more um the more common thing is that lipid skewing so it's it's just changing those ratios around as a result of um inducing hepatic triglyceride lipase um so obviously it's an adverse effect that might only become problematic in pre-existing cardiovascular diseases um depending on how much because it is really um idiosyncratic how someone will, will um will result to that like you can look at all the um all the data the safety data there is rather large fluxes and some people in the in the clinical data didn't even show any of it at all um so um uh, or, or maybe even in prolonged use um but it's cert- certainly um you know so you got right do you think
1: if got pre- do you think this would be also dose dependent though like the higher the dose the more the, the skewing effect
0: um potentially as well yeah. There, the, because um because i can only really go off that um, you know 0. 0.1 milligram per mm. kilo um, yeah. of dosing then then you know we've, we've got a pretty much standardized but but potentially yeah um it, yeah. it, it that, that might be the case and um you know i don't like to talk about PED use but people often use concomitant androgens as well <laughs> like um uh, yeah you know, it's a, yeah so um yeah so there's that and then um so the the liver stuff um Uh, it's the liver effects are generally what you would uh, Mm -hmm. uh, expect from a orally administered androgen um, saving for the lower propensity for liver injury. So there there seems to be a liver effect, but it's, um, but it doesn't, it seems to have a lower propensity for liver injury compared to other oral androgens or even other oral androgens with that seven alpha uh, uh, methyl substitute. So um, there does appear to be transient elevation of liver transaminase enzymes at initiation. But this does seem to wane over time, and as I mentioned before, we have that that two-year uh, trials, um, like continuous trials, in children, and, and one of them is done in um, in uh, at children, uh, adults over eighteen. Um, that that uh, so I, uh, we got that, that complete two years so we can really get a good gauge of what's happening with the, the liver transaminases and then if there's a sort of a, a waning in those then that's probably a more positive sign that it has less propensity to cause liver injury um, so I'm, I'm not sure we could chalk up the uh, the, uh, the, the the initial uh, spike as um, as uh, as uh, cause of, of of propensity for liver injury in, in every case, although, although there does definitely seem to be rarer cases of more overt liver injury with the oxandrolone uh, oxandrolone use. Um, so the, the the typical liver injury profile of oral androgens um, made orally bioavailable via that that seventeen alpha methyl substitution. So like with that, you see liver injury. Um, uh, is is one that sort of more looks like intrahepatic cholestasis, um, so so as well as the serum transaminase uh, levels rising, um, you you um, you'll, you'll get uh, elevations in bilirubin, suggesting um, sort of backlogging bile. Due to either damage to the biliary caniculi or or, or some degree of occlusion of the biliary ducts, uh, and with this profile, due to the cholestasis and damage to the bile up, you'll see transaminases continue to climb. Like they, they won't be mm-hmm. like a spike and then sort of dropping off; they just keep going up, um, depending on the degree of cholestasis or if the cholestasis is worsening. So, um, which doesn't seem to be the the case with with the oxandrolone data. So, um, in fact, in in the burns patients' data, um, where, where measured uh, the the burns injury itself seemed to increase the liver transaminase levels. Well, there might not necessarily have been liver transaminase levels. There could have been skeletal muscle transaminase levels, which are obviously indiscernible in, um, in uh, bioassays. And, and by large, it was not, uh, not too different from those who were taking the oxandrolone. So the, the changes wow. in liver transaminase were not too much. And, and as mentioned, there's very select reports of actual liver injury, including those of case reports of anabolic steroid use. But as I said, we're, there's only so much we can actually uh, glean from those um, uh, uh, yeah, but um but yeah, as mentioned, that prior um, metabolic resistance is probably the contributing factor to the seemingly lower propensity for causing liver injuries in comparison to the other seventeen alpha alkylate and androgens because it it appears uh, there's no liver biotransformation, um, where there is with some others, as we mentioned with the um, with the kinetics, um, the resistance to metabolism. And, um, and not being a substrate for those sort of major enzymes. And so i will avoid um, pharmacokinetic drug interactions as well, but also potentially that liver toxicity by sparing like the, you know, the, the limited um, uh, enzyme cofactors like glutathione and things like that.
1: Yeah. What, what about um, at dosages? Well, in that study when they use 0.1 milligram per kilogram body weight, did they also assess red blood cell count and hemoglobin? <laughs>
0: yeah yeah so uh in in the in the later ones they did there was there was uh no changes yeah yeah and, that, and no that's changes. that's a no, no changes yeah and uh and that's that's another one of of those parameters that wasn't really looked at in the earlier trials as well so if we go back to what we started off with um mentioning uh mentioning that yeah that's 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 another one of those things that that uh, that wasn't mentioned um uh yeah yeah, there was no no appreciable changes. Like if they were, they weren't clinically significant enough to sort of pick that up. Um, mm. Not not all the not all the safety data did, but some of it did. Uh, some, not all the safety trials did, but some of the published ones did. Um, yeah, but um, uh, there is an association um, with uh, oxandrolone with some forms of liver cancer. How this has been reported in those rare anemic um, diseases that are, that I mentioned, and where there's been that sort of multiple concurrent anabolic regime. Um, and, 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 and also in concurrent anabolic regime with, for an extended period. Um, there's also some data that suggests uh, actually some liver marker improvements, um, not specifically as a result of um, improving liver function, but um but when using oxandrolone in acute burn victims, um so I, I certainly wouldn't take this to say, oh, oxandrolone is good for the liver or you know, uh, but, but in these patients the oxandrolone reduce some acute phase proteins, um, which is probably a result of the liver injury and reducing that sort of proteolysis. Um and, and um and increase some serum proteins, which are can be interpreted as um, as as liver marker improvements um in the recovery from the metabolic trauma um, but once again this is no green light to say it's unreserved yeah. liver safety yeah yeah so that that probably covers um the 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 liver safety and, you know you know what I, I, when i was sort of looking at this I, I wanted to sort of see some sort of um some sort of um relevance to um to to real world application so i went and when and digged in some pharma, pharmacovigilance data. And I went to the, um, the TGA DAEN, the Database of Adverse uh, Effect Notifications. Um, so that's the pharmacovigilance log in Australia. And um, since its approval in Australia, right. in close to 50 years, there's been seven cases of adverse reports, <laughs> <Seven>. <laughs> whereby, uh, whereby oh. four were, were uh, where oxandrolone yeah. was the single suspected causative agent. Um, and, and, and two of those four were back pain. And the others were, uh, were changes in hepatic function and lipometasibalism. But I guess it's probably what you expect from a medicine with such narrow therapeutic indications and, and uses in rare diseases. So, not, not very many adverse reports, but um, yeah, it'd be interesting to compare that to actual prescriptions and, and to, to see. And then, then I got a broader perspective. I went to the Vigi, Vigi Access, which is um, the World Health Organization pharmacovigilance public database. Um, and that was launched in 2015, but it did grandfather in some prior pharmacovigilance data um so with this data from 1973 to 2003 there was 238 reports um from reporting countries which um, which seemed to mainly affect adults over 45 so maybe it was um maybe it was used for that uh uh, osteoporosis bone <laughs> pain indication um, and that seemed to peak around 2008 so it's probably more evidence to the fact that that's probably what it was and then there was no real trends or stands out in terms of the composition of these adverse effects 33 of that was a 238 um, were hepatobiliary disorders and um and were probably uh, probably out of all the adverse events reported because they have to sort of, you have to sort of pick down a drop box um, they were probably the only ones that are relevant adverse effects that sort of had cons- some consistency with the trial data. So the, the hepatopillary disorder. But there was a curiously large, I think it was like over 30% um, general disorders um, categorization that counted, counted for, um, for most of them. And, and, so i'm going what is a general disorder like how can you say that you know it's just giving you a general side effect um and so i want to look that up and says this is defined as a class of disorders that encompasses conditions of general kind that result from a disease the treatment of disease or administration of treatment of a particular site and are manifested by a characteristic set of symptoms and signs and you can interpret that how you will so yeah so you know, in terms of like um comparison to other androgens um yeah, you know, it seems it seems safer in terms of just going on this limited pharmacovigilance
1: data. So,
0: yeah, mm. yeah. So it's probably the safety all bottled up there, mate.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, um, speaking of like in terms of the dosages, things like that. Um, when they were using them clinically, were they prescribed in? I know you said zero point one milligram per kilogram, um, but typically now, like when they're using them in prescription medication, are they? What, twenty milligram tablets, like ten milligram like...
0: Yeah, so they used to come as two point fives in Australia and, and I believe there was a there was a two point five and a ten of the Oxandrin. So the Lonovar was two point five. Uh, I believe the Oxandrin, which was never really sold in Australia, um, was um was two point fives and tens. So um right. Yeah, I'm. I'm not sure how they had that sort of fitted into the the indications um, there, and like generally, or the approvals for the indications there. I mean, um, yeah, that's that's generally how it was. But yeah, yeah,
1: yeah, okay. And then maybe we can um maybe we can finish off with like how bodybuilders maybe have over over time like leveraged anavar. Obviously, this is yeah not medical advice. Mm. Um, but maybe you want to share like where it's been used in the bodybuilding space, like maybe how people have used it.
0: Oh I can only really go off my observations. I've, I've essentially detached myself from anything to do with any sort of advice <laughs> or anything like that. Um, but yeah, like, uh, you know, you, you hear the whispers and social media posts that people are really, uh, you know, unreservably disclosing. <laughs> it's, it's crazy to me. Um, uh, yeah. I, I, you hear like, Anovar, uh, uh,
1: you know, in, in female use, which kind of blows my oh, mind yeah. a little bit. Yeah, um, Is that because, uh, uh, does it actually have any virilize, virilizing effects? In- yeah,
0: they, they, I mean, like, some of the data in the children showed virilizing. It was minimal. It was minimal. Um, but, yeah, even at those, those, those doses. So, you know, we're talking, you know, uh, at most, a 50-kilo child um, was at was 50 milligrams per day um, that was showing, um, that was showing some signs of, of virilization. It was, it was like, it wasn't in, in all subjects, but there, there was some that seemed this sort of exquisitely androgen sensitive. So Jeez, um, the trans, yeah. the,
1: tra- the transgender population would be like, liking to hear this. <laughs>
0: yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah,
1: as I said, like it's, um,
0: you, you've got like, um, you, you've got minimum, uh, options of a, uh, an oral androgen that can, um, you know, resist metabolism and, and has a relatively that the profile itself allows for some degree of scaling. Like there's, there's a little bit more, uh, degree of scaling. Like it's most, most androgens are pretty narrow in their effect, but because, um, because there is that, you know, we, we can, we can look at that sort of, uh, intracellular trafficking data and then more broadly those the Hirschberger data and we can sort of um extrapolate out from there but like you know as i said this is venturing into the into the realms of off-label use that you know i don't really like to speak about yeah Mm. uh, at all (laughs) yeah yeah
1: awesome well um i think that pretty much unless you had any other maybe areas you're excited to see further research on like if you're hoping to see further research in a particular for a particular application in the future
0: uh in relation to to what what i sort of looked at with this that that um all that intracellular trafficking and that co-repressor co-coactivator profiling and the transcriptome um you know so that's the the mrna transcribed as a result of nuclear receptor activation translocation that sort of stuff really interests me because um because mm. you know with with nuclear receptors they don 't really um i probably should have spoken to this in the in the safety act nuclear receptors they're they 're sort of unlike other sort of other receptors cell membrane receptor bound receptors like or even en- uh, drug targets like enzymes or ion channels or g protein couple of receptors nuclear receptors they're they 're significantly more plastic and and their effects are significantly more diverse so where, where you 'll have a um where you have i think my family just come on um, where you 'll have a um a, uh, you know, a, a, a effect from the activation of a nuclear receptor, um, the scaling of the doses uh, is not necessarily limited to the actual receptor itself. So right. the receptor itself can upregulate. I mean, my other receptors do this, but the actual, like just going off the fact that you can skew that um, androgenic to anabolic ratio by virtue of the dose and to make it more androgenic that in itself just gives an indication as to how nuclear receptors themselves um you know they're 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 very unique insofar as um the dosing and uh, uh dosing and um molecular interactions are so diverse rather than like you know like a for instance, like a beta beta two receptor, you have a beta two receptor ligand. It can bind in there with a specific intrinsic activity, and then you know you'll get a, a certain magnitude of effect uh, as a result of that. And it can be outcompeted with a nuclear receptor. It's significantly more complex. Yeah, mm. but that's that's the, that's where I'm sort of where I've sort of um, sort of taken an interest in now as a result of, of learning yeah, this. Awesome. Stuff. Yeah. Well,
1: I'll yeah. make sure to leave um, some of the research articles that you may have utilized in this podcast i'll make sure to get them off you so i can link them in the show notes for those listening in um but otherwise yeah nick thanks so much for jumping on the podcast um yeah really in-depth discussion for those wanting to learn more about i mean this particular medication um again obviously nothing here is medical advice um this is purely for informational purposes only um but otherwise nick yeah it's great to have you on the show yeah
0: thanks matey awesome
1: Thank you, everyone, for joining in to today's episode. For in-depth show notes and lessons learned, visit nofilter.media forward slash boost your biology.
0: This has been a No Filter Media production.
1: Say what you want. Hold up. What
0: was that?